We are talking about Cyril's Chinese room and artificial intelligence. Hello and welcome to the tenth and final conversation of this series on the Master Metaphors. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and I'm joined by Dr. Gregory Schulz, and we are talking about Cyril's Chinese Room and artificial intelligence. I figured artificial intelligence was just all the things that I had said in the previous conversations that we had had, but I think it means something more than that. Dr. Schulz, welcome to the conversation. Thanks, Pastor. We're off to a, a very questionable start already, can we? <laughs> well, put me in Cyril's Chinese room. This is a metaphor and a thought experiment, really. So why don't we experiment with it and see where it leads us? Sure. So um, just a word about thought experiments, or if you love the German, as many of us do, the Gedanken experiment, which explains that wonderfully. Uh, this is one of the reasons why it's really fun to go to philosophy class and to talk philosophers because we are not the people who put our children into boxes to see how they'll grow up in terms of their behaviorism. We're not the folks who have to kill poor defenseless little animals to do things um, with them for physical experiments and dissections. Um, we're the men and women who set things up in just a very thoughtful, a mildly entertaining way so that the issue under discussion can come clear to all of us. So that's what this a thought experiment, which we're going to call Searle's Chinese Room Argument, is. Um, I'll be glad to follow your lead on how much background we may want to talk about, but let's say that we are all pretty used to what I'll call some basic presuppositions about the human being today. We're okay. very used as modern thinkers to hearing that human beings are nothing but machines. That sort of thinking has been going on since the time of Thomas Hobbes in a big way, and Hobbes would be back in the early 1600s around the time of one of our master metaphorists, René Descartes. It's also the case in the 20th century, thanks to some uh, recent movies over the last couple of years, we've been reminded about the work of Alan Turing, the great codebreaker mathematician, and he popularized something called the Turing test, which was intended to show that if you got to the point where you couldn't tell the difference between a computer giving responses to a question and a human being giving responses, um, then indeed there was no difference to mention between computers and human beings. So we've been having that sort of notion kick around for a while. And um, one of the contemporary thought experiments to take something of a fresh look at that is one done by the contemporary um, philosopher, professor of philosophy at Berkeley University, John Searle. So we're providing this um, in our usual spot at whatdoesthismean.org, but here are a few paragraphs of Searle's own text that give us his Chinese room. And then, given half a chance, I'll give you my own version of that for university students. Sure. So here is Searle. Suppose that I'm locked in a room and given a large batch of Chinese writing. Suppose, furthermore, as is indeed the case, that I know no Chinese, either written or spoken, and that I'm not even confident that I could recognize Chinese writing as Chinese writing distinct from, say, Japanese writing or meaningless squiggles. To me, 
Chinese writing is just so many meaningless squiggles. Okay, now so I just want to kind of pause there and say so we have the text, and apparently that this Chinese text is a true language,、uh, and if you could know. So someone has written it, and someone who knows Chinese could, in fact, read it. So this is the point that it is a, a meaningful piece of information, but I don't have the capacity to interact with it as such because of my lack of Chinese knowledge. Well, that's nicely put. So、um, presumably, I could learn it. That's a little bit beside the point for our case study. The fact is that Cyril, as the、uh, person in the Chinese room, is saying he doesn't know it. So you're、okay. right; it's a perfectly coherent language, no glossolalia or anything, and Um, it's it's just the fact that the person who's supposed to be doing the work does not understand it. its meaningless squiggles to him. Okay, I'm there. I'm in the room. All right. Okay. Okay. Now suppose further that after this first batch of Chinese writing, I'm given a second batch of Chinese script together with a set of rules for correlating the second batch with the first batch. The rules are in English, and I understand the rules as well as any other native speaker of English. They enable me to correlate one set of formal symbols. With another set of formal symbols, and all that formal means here is that I can identify the symbols entirely by their shapes. So, now, so,、yeah. so, so now I, so I have some sort of, so I've got another pile of Chinese writing, and then I've got instructions to go with it. So that if I see this kind of shape over here, I'm to correlate it or put it together with this kind of other shapes on this side. So this goes with this, this goes with this. It's and and the English is telling me what shapes to match up with what shapes. Exactly right. Okay. Now suppose also that I'm given a third batch of Chinese symbols together with some instructions, again in English, that enable me to correlate elements of this third batch with the first two batches, and these rules instruct me how to give back certain Chinese symbols with certain sorts of shapes in response to certain sorts of shapes given me in the third batch. Unknown to me, the people who are giving me all of these symbols call the first batch a script. They call the second batch a story, and they call the third batch questions. Furthermore, they call the symbols I give them back in response to the third batch answers to the questions, and the set of rules in English that they gave me they call the program. Okay, so I have three batches and the, and instructions on how to connect them all to each other, and then I have instructions for some sort of output. So、uh, if I get when I as I look at this particular symbol, then I am to output this particular symbol, and these have varying degrees of complexity. Well, sure, and then the thing is that we just got a glimpse outside the box, so. We know what's going on inside, where Cyril or you or I are handling Chinese symbols that, because we don't understand Chinese, look like squiggles to us, and we're following English rules for what to do with them. But outside the box, whatever we take in and pass out are being called a script, a story, questions. And answers to questions. And, but for all I know, I'm just equivalent. I'm just、uh, putting together different shapes and squiggles. Purely, all, purely mechanical. Purely、that's、mechanical all. operation for Absolutely. me. Absolutely.、Yep. Okay. Got it. All right. Couple more brief paragraphs. Yep.、Uh, now that we've got it down. Now, just to complicate the story a little, imagine that these people also give me stories in English, which I understand, and they then ask me questions in English about these stories. And I give them back answers in English. Suppose also that after a while I get so good at following the instructions for manipulating the Chinese symbols, and the programmers get so good at writing the programs 
that from the external point of view, that is, from the point of view of somebody outside the room in which I am locked, my answers to the questions are absolutely indistinguishable from those of native Chinese speakers. Nobody <laughs> just looking at my answers can tell that I don't speak a word of Chinese. Ah, I got it. Okay, so now I'm I'm getting these Chinese symbols. I'm I'm looking at them. Almost, it it must look like from the outside that I'm even reading them. But what I'm really doing is just observing them to make calculations. I'm looking at certain symbols, which happen to be questions. I don't even know it. I'm responding with other symbols, which happen to be answers. I don't even know this. And what it looks like is is as if I understand and am interacting with the Chinese language and am reacting in such a way to show that I can understand and, and respond and this sort of thing. In other words, there, from the outside, there's no formal difference from what I'm doing with the, as I interact with the Chinese than what I do when I interact with the English. Right. And let's just add in that speaking about these people on the outside, they are not speaking accurately. So they're handling the rule-governed arrangement of the Chinese squiggles they're handling that as if they are stories and answers to questions. Ah. ah. Okay. So <laughs> okay. one more paragraph and a couple sentences. Okay. Let us also suppose that my answers to the English questions are, as they no doubt would be, indistinguishable from those of other native English speakers for the simple reason that I am a native English speaker. <laughs> from the external point of view – from the point of view of someone reading my, quote, answers, the answers to the Chinese questions and the English questions are equally good. But in the Chinese case, unlike the English case, I produce the answers by manipulating uninterpreted formal symbols. As far as the Chinese is concerned, I simply behave like a computer. I perform computational operations on formally specified elements. For the purposes of the Chinese, I am simply an instantiation of the computer program. Now, the claims made by strong artificial intelligence people are that the programmed computer understands the stories and that the program in some sense explains human understanding. But now we are in a position to examine these claims in the light of our thought experiment. Ah, okay, I got it. So, so this is testing the limits on... Um, in, uh, uh, in, how far can we talk of a computer understanding on the one hand and then on the other hand um, uh, in other words can we take our human act of understanding and apply it to a computer and then on the other way can we take what a computer does and apply it to our own uh, uh, to our own I don't know how to say this otherwise than saying our own understanding of our understanding so oh, and, right so then it would be that, that what we're doing is we're imposing our experience as human beings on what the computer is doing. So, so what C Cyril is getting at is that it might look to us like a computer is, is thinking or understanding or um, in some way uh, acting like a, a brain or a mind or something like this, but the but the point of putting us in the Chinese room is to show us the difference, the difference between what a computer is doing and the difference between what a human being is doing. That's it exactly. Got it. And and so and and what's his conclusion going to be from this room? 
Well, the conclusion is that there is no sort of understanding going on by the computer at all. Um, the programs, no matter how you would want to picture them, don't count as thinking or understanding in anything that matches what our human performance is. So there's so there's two things that are, and and maybe we can talk about this a, a little bit, but um, if we equate the things that a computer is doing with the things that the human mind is doing, then either we're kind of exalting the work of the uh, or the thing of that a computer accomplishes or, or we're diminishing the thing that the human being is doing or perhaps we're doing both of these things yeah i think not only is that well put brian but that's a an extraordinarily important issue for us to be aware of and be talking about a lot today so the payoff for this um with due respect to computer science the payoff for this is actually in the humane or the humanities side of things, and especially in regard to ethics. So if ethics is posing the question, which we've discussed with a couple of our other metaphors, how ought we live together with our fellow human beings um, to the degree that we diminish our understanding of what it means to be a human being, we are going to be unethical, dismissive, and immoral toward ourselves and our fellow human beings. To the degree that we understand the nobility, the dignity, the worth of the human being as a distinct kind of being in God's creation, and we haven't even talked about redemption yet, right? But as the human creature, um, there we can finally get serious about ethics, which, of course, we're having a nearly impossible time uh, doing today. So you're exactly right. You can get this all bollocked up, which is a very silly confusion, I think, uh, but you get it bollocked up by doing one of those two things or both. If you diminish your understanding of the human being, it's very easy to make a computer look like it's doing just what a human being does. And if you um, ridiculously inflate or completely misrepresent the performance of the computer um, so that it, it looks like human stuff, then again, you've got problems distinguishing the two. But it's a, probably a both end. I think that when I was reading through Cyril's thing here, it, it occurred to me that the advantage of this artificial intelligence conversation is the opportunity to revisit our anthropology. Now, anthropology, you know, normally we hear that word and we think of the anthropology department, which is, you know, people studying um, the, the coming-of-age ceremonies in the Aborigines in Australia or something like that. But when we talk about anthropology, we mean... Our, our doctrine or our understanding of humanity, what makes a human being, uh, what is the essence and so forth of a, of a person. Um, and, uh, and this is a great time to talk about that because it seems that one of the things that, that we say, and you mentioned this in the introduction, and it's almost something that Cyril is going to later assume is a purely mechanical or, um, uh, a material understanding of humanity. That um, that we are in fact very very complex machines, and that's going to be uh, the assumption uh, that we're that we're facing um, when we talk about humanity nowadays. Well, sure, um, and you know, on the one hand, it leads to to all sorts of just very silly non sequitur conversations, but on the other, it contributes to this um, 
diminution of the human being. So I think probably what we're talking about, um, which you dif- differentiated, you know, just extremely well, is not professional anthropology, the social science today, which describes things very well, but we're actually talking about philosophical anthropology or theological anthropology, that um, fuller effort to understand the human being that's part of our heritage as Bible readers, I think, and certainly as people in Western culture. Um, We included, if I can just slip this in here, we included in the resources for our listeners um, a bit of an excerpt from an important article on that issue of humans and machines by William Dembski. This is a First Things article from 1999 with the title, Are We Spiritual Machines? And uh, some of our our pastors and our um, Christian listeners might feel that it's a little bothersome that Dembski doesn't talk more about Scripture. I think you and I want to. Um, but it's rather the case that he's doing some careful analyzing of just how inept the analogy between machines and human beings is. So he's doing some I think pretty helpful philosophical work, but then the main the main concern that we would have would be to look um, with fear and trembling at the incarnation of our God, right? And then consider passages such as Romans eight, "What is man that you are mindful of him?" and the um, use of that in Hebrews two, where we learn that the true understanding and the distinctive of our humanity is that we're part of God's species by virtue of the incarnation. Uh, but, of course, um, our person for today, Searle, is not uh, really concerned with that at all. I, I'd never, by the way, in reference to Psalm 8 and uh, uh, Hebrews 2, I had never heard that language of being of God's species. Is that something that, is that a phrase that you've um, uh, cast, or had you did you pick that up from somebody else? I doubt to tell you the truth that I have too many original thoughts. I can't. I can't say. I. I think. Uh, I bet you I did. I, I may have put it. I may have put it together. Yeah, I think you did. Okay, that is wonder, and it's beautiful, and I think it gets to the point. But maybe if, if I could kind of test you on this, and it's not something we talked about before the conversation, but it, when you encounter someone. Um, who has this mechanical view, this kind of monistic, materialistic view, not only of all of the world, but of humanity. Do you have a couple of ways that you kind of poke at that or dismantle it, uh, both from the Scripture and maybe just from philosophy itself and and reason? Well, sure. Um, So for one thing, I think you and I can be uh, real confident that we're doing a good thing to recommend that Dembski article. So I happen to have part of that open in front of me, in the first paragraph of Are We Spiritual Machines, William Dembski points out, um, as you were just alerting us, that there are uh, quite a few materialists uh, since the time of the Enlightenment who do refer to the human being as nothing but mechanism or machine. Uh, we've included a, a quote from Thomas Hobbes in the study materials for this metaphor that underlie that. So Dembski has this line, though, right after that first paragraph, listing how this has been a pretty persistent view since the time of the Enlightenment. And this is a quote from Dembski. Materialism remains unsatisfying, however. It seems inadequate to explain our deeper selves. So I, I think that that one thing that really has to be brought up in conversation. Now, I get to do this in class. You know, I can even kind of sort of invite some of my students to voice this, whether they just want to check it out or they're 
really thinking it themselves to explain what it means to have a materialist view of the human being. And then I, I try to steer the conversation toward asking how satisfied they are with that worldview or that view of themselves. And I think, by and large, it comes clear, you know, after a bit of discussing and, if necessary, some some reading to dislodge the, the current presuppositions and think a little differently, it comes pretty clear that that's a very dissatisfying sort of thing. In fact, it's not just mildly dissatisfying. It would seem that if the more um, robust versions of materialism, such as eliminative materialism, which says there really is nothing but matter and energy, that we we actually might as well give up the conversation because there's no way to understand our most important um, aspects of being human, such as love, for instance. It's just, you know, some sort of neuronal firings or or whatever. Um, so materialism turns out to be very, very unsatisfying. And then um, another way to look at that is I've found that it's rather important um, not to settle for a merely cognitive view of the human being. Um, I think that that tends, it doesn't have to, and it really doesn't, but it tends to play into the ease of equating human beings with computer programs. Um, so if, however, we pay attention to our will and we pay attention to our um, emotional aspect of being human, uh, it's, it, that becomes much harder to slip by and somehow equate that with some sort of machine operation. Uh, and then, of course, you know what the really satisfying thing is? To recite Psalm 8. Yeah, yeah that's right. Take a look at this. I, I think some of the most beautiful things I've ever read um, outside of the scriptures is a Luther's commentary on Psalm 8, where he takes it like Hebrews 2 straight to Christ where and, and shows not only his, his incarnation, but his humiliation and the resulting exaltation of Jesus and our humanity with him right there in the, in the Psalm 8. It's just absolutely stunning. But if, can I wind back and say, so um, to, to, discon, to kind of combat the cognitive view, that is that we are kind of embodied minds, um, what Cyril calls a dualism, that there's a, that there can be a, a clear distinction or maybe even separate, there can be a separation between the brain and the mind. The brain being the organic matter that you can take out of the head and weigh and test and stuff. And the mind being the thoughts that are accomplished in that brain. He's going to fight that dualism, but but you were fighting it in a different way by saying, hey, don't just think of your mind or your reason, your thinking, but think also of the will and your emotions. And when we understand ourselves that this that, that the inner life has much more than simply thought to it, then then that helps us combat the idea that that, that we are just minds that happen to be trapped in bodies. Is that is that what you're getting after? Well, that's that's a significant step in the direction that I've been trying to work. Now, the other thing is what looks at first like kind of a um, hoity-toity or, or jargon philosophy word. It's the word that's really central to Searle's handling of his own argument with the Chinese room, and that's the word intentionality. So um, here's the thing in a nutshell, and then um, alas for you, I've, I've written a book on this, so, you know, <laughs> 
Uh, if you want to ask some, you can get way too much at the drop of a hat. But <laughs> we'll try to. Yeah, we'll be careful. Uh, intentionality, intentionality, is a um, realization, not an invention, but a realization about our consciousness that shows that Rene Descartes was dead wrong to suggest that we are minds in solitary confinement from everything else. So the first move here is to realize that if we would look just at what you could consider the cognitive aspect of our consciousness or our human mind, it never is the case that we just have an idea or we just think. We are always thinking about something. Now, it would be worthwhile to talk about that a lot more. We did a little bit when we were visiting about that master metaphor of Rene Descartes' uh, evil demon or God is the evil deceiver. But it's also the case, as has been pointed out as recently as the 20th century in the work of Martin Heidegger, that our emotions are also intentional. So I don't just sit here um, loving. I sit here <laughs> loving my Savior, or I am loving my wife, or perhaps in a lesser but still meaningful sense, I love talking about philosophy for the sake of helping people pay more attention to the Bible and our Christian mission. So there's always this intentionality. Now, the reason that Searle uh, and his Chinese room actually are far more interesting and helpful than most people let on is because most of his readers seem to be fans of artificial intelligence who are educated very educated in matters of AI and uh, computers and programming, but seem not to have very much uh, philosophy or contemporary philosophy under their belts. So they just slip right over that term intentionality. But what Searle is saying is that if you stick a human being inside the box rather than sticking computer hardware and programming inside the box, the human being is characterized by having intentionality. So uh, when I'm, if I were that person in the box, I would actually be looking for meaning and trying to get at meaning with those Chinese squiggles, even though I wouldn't have it in the case of Chinese. That's why he mentioned that I could also do something in English and there I would have a grasp of the meaning, which means um, that's all got intentionality. So the language links to the rest of language. It links to the outside world. And in the case of emotions, a problem where I think Searle is not adequate. Um, when it comes to emotions, emotions are not something that we reflect on initially. We have them. So we are situated in our world by our emotions immediately without anything in between. We can step back and ask if we're having the right emotions or um, through his word, God can work on our emotions to alter them and so forth. But we are fundamentally being in the world emotionally. And then we go back to make sense of things and work at our intellectual projects and so forth. And the computer, the computer program, does not have intentionality. It is a rule-governed, act-for-act, flowchart performance that mimics intentionality only to beings considering computers that themselves know intentionality from the inside out. That's the human being. 
I, I'm gonna, if I could, I'm gonna read your definition of intentionality. This is from your book, Wednesday's Child, from Heidegger to Effective Neuroscience: A Field Theory of Angst, uh, which I'm gonna have to read, and then maybe we can do some more conversations about. It. But you, you say intentionality is this: that that a feeling, emotion, or mood is about something. It's objectivity. A mood such as angst is about the world as a whole, the undefined world in which an individual is situated. The situatedness is immediate and is not reducible either to cognition or to volition. The location of intentionality is best understood as a spatio-temporal field of consciousness and intersubjective experience. That's what you were saying, right? Yeah, clear as all get out, huh? (laughs) Now this this is um this is going further than Cyril's understanding of intentionality. But Cyr- now Cyril is going to say that the picture of the Chinese room is going to indicate that me doing the Chinese stuff is obviously lacks intentionality, whereas me responding to English obviously has intentionality. And then Cyril is going to go on in his thing to ask a series of questions. So, for example, he he's going to say. Could there be something like artificial intelligence? He's going to say, yeah, there can be. In fact, if you could reproduce a, a human being with a brain, you would have artificial – you would have produce intelligence. But that artificial intelligence cannot be produced by a computer or by a machine. Uh, uh, I, no, I shouldn't say that. It's not by a machine, but it's by a computer because the computer itself just by definition lacks the capacity – to accomplish intentionality. Did, did, I, did I get his argument right? I think that's right. So um, Searle has a different view of this than I've argued for, but the, I think the deal is that he wants to say the human being is really a machine, but by virtue of our biological makeup, we do have intentionality or understanding or we're embedded in things, do you see? Yep. Whereas the computer has not a mind but a program, and neither the computer, which is purely mechanical, not biological, neither the computer nor its whiz-bang program deliver any intentionality or understanding at all. That's always mistakenly read onto what the computer does by the human being. So, And I want to see if maybe there's a third way, because... But because Cyril, is, it's it's some way that there's a kind of an an irony, and so so see if I can set it up. That the, there's an irony that we tor- tend to even the materialist tends to become a dualist when thinking about the human thought cognition, and they see this separation distinction to the point of separation between the mind and the brain, and Cyril is going to say that this is untenable. He's going to, in fact, kind of articulate a pure materialism or a pure mechanical view of, of the human and say, no, it's the, the brain and the mind are the same. The, you can't make a distinction between the hardware and the program. In the human brain, they're bound up together. But the point is that neither of these two options that Cyril seems to put before us have any place for what we would want to talk about as the chief thing that makes a human being a human being, and that is the fact that we are created in the image of God. So we are both body and soul bound up together with one another. Well, so here's a big question. Um, what is the image of God? <laughs> I don't, see, I, I know the shortcut answer, 
which is from our book of Concord, that talks about the original righteousness in which we're created. But I want to hear you reflect on this a little bit, perhaps. Can I turn it around and send it to you? Well, of course you can. You're the interviewer. Okay, that's what I want to do. You have control of the audio. (laughs) Um, So, well, how about this? When we hear about the image of God from Genesis, it, it certainly is an imprint of some sort on us as human beings from God. Now, the question then is, is what? And um, I don't want to find myself denying those really brilliant comments about righteousness and so forth. But I'd like to say maybe, or almost certainly, instead of agreeing that the imprint of God is rationality, how about we say that the imprint of God is personhood or something along those lines? So um, when God imprinted himself on us, we notice that um, in those words that Moses quotes God as using, let us make man in our image, we're hearing um, somehow the inside of a Trinitarian conversation. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, let us make man in our image. And the other... (laughs) The other time we get a, a really good look at the Trinity, it seems to me, is is in the person of Jesus then in the New Testament from um, seeing how the Son of God relates to the Father, the Son, as God himself. And there um, we find that the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. And so anyhow, I think that um, if I had to say it in a short form, that the um, imago dei, the image of God, is fundamentally our social being. So the community with God, which I take it that confession's reference of righteousness, is calling out. And you could also talk about our um, being a social kind of creature. We are really no good in absolute isolation from one another. That's pathological. That's not human in some respect. Um, and we're meant to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves so I would say that. Then we're back to intentionality. So in intentionality, that's not just or primarily that um, we are emotionally situated, whether we want it or not, whether we want to think about it or not. We're emotionally situated in God's creation. And most notably, we are um, situated among our fellow human beings. So, mm-hmm. you know, you just got to deal with that. And you can deal with it in harmony with God's will, or you can deal with it in opposition to his will. Huh. So, so that this idea of, of personhood, which means that I, that I, I, I have, there's a, there's both a wholeness according to myself and, but also a, um, I don't know, a kind of a comp, uh, both a, um, a necessity, an obligation, perhaps a uh, a way at which I'm now always bent outside of myself uh, toward the world around me, which includes my neighbor and creation and even God. Well, thanks. I I don't see any use though for the the notion of integrity of the self. So, um, what what does it mean to be the kind of human being that we've been created and redeemed to me? To be, it means to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, mm-hmm. and to love our neighbor as ourselves. I can't be the person that I've been created and redeemed to be if I am not 
already and always in relationship to God and to these other people. So there, I don't have any, <clears throat> it's not that I've got some, some notion that I'm just part of a vast nothingness, but it, it, I don't have any self-sustaining selfhood. I'm not, um, I'm not sufficient unto myself. I, in fact, I think, you know, biblically and in terms of the Psalms especially, not just their cognitive content, but what they're really doing with us, we're constantly being put again into proper relationship with God and then a relationship with our fellow human beings that reflects God's will for how we should relate to each other. And, and this would have to do, uh, we at least we hope, in the end, with what, uh, this discussion that we had when we were talking about Aristotle and uh, and Luther and our anthropology, that people are the, the humanos justificatio, the, the, the justified man, that we have the capacity to be forgiven. I mean, and and more than the capacity that we are forgiven by by the by Jesus, who is God and our brother at the same time. Well, yes. So we don't mind uh, redoing the footnote, right? So that's Luther's 1536 disputation concerning the concerning man. And uh, that's a particular disputation that Oswald Baer has been for some time now helping many of us to pay much more attention to. Now, how, how would this how would this serve as a critique to the Chinese room? Um, in other words, is there a way that we could modify that thought experiment to not only show the difference between the computer and the man or the person with intentionality, but but to show the difference between the the, the man as machine versus the man as created in God's image? Well, I'm thinking. <laughs> Because that that's the essential point, right? So, I mean, it's helpful for us to be able to, to bring Cyril's room to people and critique the idea that that we're just very, very complex calculators. You know, I mean, that's just kind of absurd. But it's not just enough to 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 end up with um, the distinction between the the human as a human machine and the computer as a as a computer machine. We we want to. That's still kind of a, a distinction without a difference. We want to be able to say no. That as human beings, we stand in fact apart from creation, as the only thing in all of the universe created in the image of God, the only thing in all of the universe redeemed by the death of, and resurrection of Jesus, um, and uh, and in in fact, in some ways, it's humanity that alone has the promise of the resurrection. Uh, to endure the judgment that is to come. So, so we want to make sure that that when we talk about humanity, we're talking about something with a with an extreme um, distinction from the rest of creation. Yeah. So let me take a run at your question. This is, um, I think, this is faithful to what you're asking, but but probably not quite the way we would expect. So I'll need to explain that too. All right. So here's here's my version of Searle's Chinese Room which is uh, far less rigorous than his own example, but a little bit more memorable, especially for my undergrads who are studying Searle's Chinese Room for the first time, which, by the way, one of my 101 sections was doing for an assignment uh, just this morning. So (laughs) um, We recorded just a little bit too late for those guys. Yeah, well, actually, (laughs) I've got something to say about that too in just a second, so so give me a a little bit of leash here. The, um, The... 
the way I suggested is this. Um, I said to them, well, why don't you guys just suppose hypothetically, purely hypothetically, that we've reached the point in the semester where some of you are absolutely desperate for extra credit. Let's just suppose that your your GPA and your feeling of self-worth and everything in the world is hanging on whether you can get extra credit for Philosophy 101 because the grades haven't been going quite the way you were hoping. So suppose that you're camping out at my office door and saying, Dr. Schultz, please, 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 can you come up with some extra credit? We'll wash your car. We'll pick up your dry cleaning. We'll cut your lawn, whatever we have to do for extra credit. And I'll, of course, have to say to them, I'm sorry, uh, my dear young friends, but that would be quite unethical, so I can't offer that to you. And then they'd say, but we still need the extra credit. Isn't there some moral obligation to give us extra credit? And I would say, okay, well, let's do this. Um, we do have a, a project in the philosophy department, um, and maybe we can do this for extra credit. So what you'll have to do is uh, we'll just pick the one of you who's most worthy of the extra credit, and you have to show up in our classroom, which is, uh, by the way, a windowless classroom. You have to show up in our classroom this Saturday morning at 6 a.m., and I'll tell you what you have to do. Plan to spend the whole day there, and it's a credit or no credit thing. So suppose they come, they really want this extra credit, 6 a.m. Saturday morning, and I hand them a small stack of three-ring binders. In the three-ring binders, there are facing pages of, guess what, English directions and Chinese letters. So there's one Chinese character per 8.5 by 11 page, and right across from it, are the directions with what to do with it. So um, they open up to the first page. There's a Chinese character, and the directions are to paste it to the wall in the upper left corner by the door. And every notebook is filled with directions like that for Chinese characters. I check with them at noon, and they are just dutifully following the directions. At 6 p.m., they're still following the directions. They really want that extra credit, but they're quite frustrated because they don't know what they're doing. Still... The walls and the ceiling are filling up with Chinese characters. Finally, about maybe 12.30 Sunday morning, uh, they wrap it up. And it just so happens that as soon as they call me and say the job is done, um, I happen to have a friend from China visiting. I actually do have a friend who teaches philosophy in China. So <clears throat> we're just getting back for a very, from a very late dinner. We come into that classroom, and the student starts to report to me, Dr. Schultz, I'm ready for the extra credit. I did absolutely everything in all of those binders. And my Chinese friend who teaches philosophy says, Greg, I had no idea. When you bragged about how bright all of your philosophy students here at Concordia were, I, I just I I just thought you were bragging with nothing behind it. But I can see here that on the walls and the ceiling of this room, you have the most brilliant synopsis of Chinese wisdom ever produced in the history of the world. This truly is amazing. <laughs> Well, the students don't know anything about it, right? Mm -hmm. They just follow the directions. So that's Searle's Chinese room argument. But I might tell my students, uh, so now what? And, you know, they're thinking, oh, yeah, if only he'd give us that big extra credit project. But I say, well, now, wait a minute. What do we get out of this? We get the discussion that we just had. We get the opportunity to sit here as people who understand what it is we're talking about when we talk about being a human being and what it means to love God and to love each other. And we understand what it means that Christ has made us in his image and for the very purpose of loving our neighbor as ourselves. And we are having this wonderful opportunity of which we can say, and everybody understands what I mean, 
when I say, go and do thou likewise. Hmm. To whom much has been given from her shall much be expected now. So it's, you know, it's a little bit like that sign outside the parking lots of some of our churches, right? You're now entering the mission field. And the, the point of the Chinese room is to get out of the Chinese room so that nobody can box us in or um, heaven help us. Nobody can box us in several rooms next to each other, some kind of, you know, matrix sequestration or something where we're never really in touch with each other. But we relate to each other as persons. We love, we respect, we hear, we learn, we understand. That, so that so that to say that the person that's in the Chinese room who's sitting there and doing this this kind of dutiful connecting of this Chinese letter to that Chinese letter – the fact that they get frustrated knowing that they're just acting like machines and that they don't actually understand what they're doing, that that, in fact, is the point that we can we can kind of instinctively realize that we are um, ourselves much, much more than very complex machines. Is that? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and the fact that we can sit here and reflect on the Chinese room instead of just being in there doing this work is itself something. Now, now th- what what remi- this reminded me of as you were talking about it is, and I and I wonder if there's a connection between the, I mean, our kind of crazy addiction to technology, and the rise of the the kind of industrialized nations, and especially the the. Um, the turn of the century, the turn of the twentieth century, the, the the kind of the factory work, the kind of mindless work that was required by the factory of you you know sit here and screw this bolt onto this nut a hundred times a day, where where the man um, was under the man as worker was simply understood to be part of a larger machine of industry. If that factors into this, that. That this understanding of man as machine is in, is inviting us into a kind of either robotic or animal existence rather than the the life of a free person that's reflecting and interacting with the good and the true and the beautiful. Another sharp point. So um, a century and a little bit more ago, we would lament if a human being – is being used as nothing more than machine labor. But in our information age, and now well into the 21st century, we seriously think it would be a glorious thing if we could afford to have a chip implanted in our brains and be made to be more (laughs) computer-like. That is fantastic. That right there is worth the price of admission. I want to maybe say one, take the conversation one more direction and ask if... um, I, I'm thinking about this saying of Jesus, where this beautiful thing, where Jesus says, um, "The servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I have told you what I'm doing, and I no longer call you servants, but now I call you friends." I should probably look up the text; it's in the Gospel of John. But this move, where Jesus um, is not only inviting us to live a life with intentionality, uh, a human life. But he's even letting us in on the intent of of God Himself, on what the Father, Son, and Holy Holy Spirit are doing in creation and redemption and sanctification. That um, that to be a Christian is not only to live uh, a human life, 
but to, I think as you um, mentioned earlier, that we are sharing in the life of God himself, in the eternal life that Jesus comes to bring to us. And we know the not only the intent of man and the, some of the intent of creation, but we know in the end the intent of God. Mm. Yeah, and for my part, it's a a cold substitute for the warm and living words of God to offer this as um, a partial synonym for will and for love. But it may also be helpful once in a while to say that, um, as you suggested, um, God has intentionality. And therefore, when he made us in his image, he saw to it that we have intentionality also. And let us not squander that for the the stew of um, being enamored with technology and mechanism. Maybe as a way of summary of all ten of our master metaphors, it seems to me, um, it, I don't know how to say this, and maybe I should have a little bit more humility in saying it, but it seems to me in some ways that philosophy is just getting worse. <laughs> That that uh, uh, that uh, rather than this kind of full understanding of the of the joy and the beauty of life, of our place in the world, uh, standing before creation and before God, and our understanding of what you know is kind of good and whole that that we're in some ways we're kind of sh- we're kind of shrinking, and that the modern ph- philosophies are in so- in some sort of ways kind of a they're um they've got reductionistic tendencies uh that man that humanity is getting smaller and smaller that creation is getting smaller and smaller um that god has gotten so small that he doesn't even factor in anymore um am i right about that or well i think that's fair um except that i would notice that most every undertaking is getting smaller and smaller i think in a different different kind of conversation if we remember that there's a difference between the Bible and what we make of it generation by generation. Um, we could say that theology has been getting smaller, hmm. too. I mean, to the degree that we've we, we've not been reading and making use of Christ and his scriptures, right, to inform and reinform uh, what we're preaching and what we're believing and what we're carrying out to the world. Um, but I, I think you're fundamentally right. I generally cast modernity from 1600 on as um, the messy divorce between faith and reason following the um, medieval synthesis or the marriage of faith and reason from the Middle Ages. Um, But it's also the case that if you're looking for a place in the curriculum or a place in our professional and personal reading where you can be alerted to the things that have gone wrong and perhaps even why they've gone wrong, um, it remains that philosophy is the larger, um, more original pursuit, which at least claims to be looking for wisdom and not teaching people just how to build a better widget or to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> or or be a, a, just a really thoughtful widget. <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, yeah, but it wouldn't be thought. Would yeah, it? that's right. The, the mind, a widget, a mind widget. <laughs> No, that's fantastic. Well, thank you. I mean, thanks for bringing this to us. I mean, not only Cyril's room, but but all of the master metaphors. It, um, you know, from the very beginning when we started talking, it really captured my imagination and continues to capture my imagination. Um, I know. Maybe I'll give you the last word as we wrap up 
the, this conversation. Um, and but to let the readers know that you and I both have hopes that this is just the first of many conversations. Uh, we're tossing around the idea of a, a conversation like this on ethics. Um, and some, there's perhaps some other things in the wings, um, but but uh, give us the big the big picture and maybe the wrap up, um, even as you introduced us that to be a lover of wisdom in the end is to be not only a lover of God but also especially to be loved by God. Well, thanks. First of all, I'm delighted to hear you commit to that ethics series on the air here. Also, <laughs> um, secondly, also a small but important point. This is a shout-out to my Philosophy 101 folks who are going to be assigned uh, this podcast as that extra credit project that they have been All right. For. So we've done a lot of good for these valuable, immortal young souls. And friend. Um, what I'd like to say is uh, that um, my concern for philosophy is really on my part to be able to ask the questions about philosophy and Christ as somebody who studies and teaches philosophy, but who also, um, by his grace, is thoroughly committed to Christ and his word. So um, we have St. Paul cautioning us, all of us, I think, in Colossians 2, to watch out for hollow and deceptive philosophy, the kind that depends on the basic principles, the stoikia of this world, rather than katakristan, on Christ himself. And that's the same apostle who says in the opening of First Corinthians, um, when he's talking about Jews demanding signs and Greeks looking for wisdom, sophos, that Christ is the sophos of God. So in, in some fashion, I don't want to bring the gospel inside of philosophy, but we should see philosophy done well, reading all the, t- the great texts of the ages and, and really discussing and thinking. We should see philosophy done well as a ministerial use of reason. Um, I really think we can't afford not to attend to it because the price to be paid may be that we're actually not thinking the way we as Lutheran pastors ought to be because of our patrimony in the Lutheran Christian faith. Um, and then finally, in light with today's metaphor, um, the function of philosophy can serve to remind us, as uh, an author by the name of Weaver wrote about a generation or so ago, ideas have consequences. So the stuff that is being assumed in academic and university circles is stuff that we have to uh, be engaged in dealing with ourselves, but with our Bibles open, with our hearts and minds um, open to address people who are really wrestling with this stuff. And and then, you know, we find ourselves in a, a rather amazing situation. Um, I mentioned in passing Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, yet crowned him with glory and honor. Uh, it means a great deal to me as a philosopher and a professor of philosophy to be able to talk about anthropology and wisdom and true understanding and just recite that for my philosophy students, as we're doing um, over the air right now. It also is the case that we need to spur each other on to be making every opportunity to bring this true, capital T, truth, word of God, about Christ, God in the flesh, um, to people as the winsome reality and winsome doctrine that it is. Philosophy katakristan is, I think, the project. 
Oh, thank you, and thanks for bringing this to our listeners. Uh, especially, I want to personally thank you for bringing these um, insights uh, to me. Um, it's I, I, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm very, 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 very grateful. And I know that those listening uh, are also very grateful to you and the work that you've done. It's a, it's rare. In fact, I don't know anybody else who's teaching philosophy but's an ordained Lutheran pastor and committed themselves to this vocation of seeking after truth uh, and bringing it to the students. And so may God grant you his grace and peace and especially that um, the, the, that he who is good and beautiful and true, uh, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that his name would be uh, extolled as excellent in all the earth, uh, and that we would rejoice that um, that His name is given to us in baptism, uh, and so God be praised for that as well. Thank you, Doctor Schultz. Amen, and my pleasure, Brian.